0: Welcome to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, and today we're going to be talking Eastern Orthodoxy. We have here with us Pastor Jason Wallace of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, my pastor. Um, Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. I figured we'd start today with reading from Paul, his second letter to Timothy, and yes, we do think Paul wrote this. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. your ministry, that is the word of God, and very relevant today. I noticed I didn't I didn't see anything in there about liturgy and icons and all that. So, <clears throat> which may have been relevant if that's what he was secretly teaching the Thessalonians, according to someone we're going to bring up today. But, um, Jason, you've made a lot of videos, and I know your earnest plea to LDS has hundred and. 40 something, what thousand views, something like that. So you've had some videos that have had an impact on the YouTube community, on the online community, but this is a month out and it has struck a nerve. Has it not?
1: seems to. Yeah. We've had um, over 35,000 views so far and uh, well over 2000 comments. Wow. That's awesome. Why Eastern Orthodoxy? To me, it's sort of a natural extension. I mean, we started with Mormonism, and to me, unbelief comes in a whole host of different packages. I mean, we've dealt with atheism. We've made a number of videos on atheism. But everyone knows there's a God. It's Romans 1. It's obvious. So people suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Mormonism is a restorationist religion that says that the religion of the apostles was lost in a great apostasy and then it was restored in the... Priesthood authority was restored in the Susquehanna River in 1829. So we've we've dealt with Mormonism. Uh, I think we've made eight different videos dealing with various facets, sort of a big video dealing with the nature of of the of God and the gospel, uh, various historical claims such as uh, the Lamanites, and uh, dealing with Joseph Smith according to general authorities, particularly those of the First Presidency and the original Twelve Apostles. We we've dealt with the historical, but more importantly, the biblical claims. From there, we've realized that lots of other people are using the same arguments against biblical Christianity just in different ways. Uh, you have, you know, Mormonism claiming to be the, the one true and living faith upon uh, our church upon the face of the earth. Uh, Rome claims the same thing. We, we've done stuff with Roman Catholicism over the years, uh, partially because we had James White come to town. He debated atheists. I'm sorry, de- debated. He has debated atheists, but he debated first Mormons. But then we started doing Roman Catholic debates, and a lot of it was over the same thing. Both are both are rejecting uh, scripture as the ultimate authority. Scripture becomes a subordinate authority to the church, so the question becomes which church. Um, Eastern Orthodoxy had popped up on the radar screen partially because a lot of Mormons were appealing to theosis. Uh, lots of other things, plus a lot of people are being drawn to Eastern Orthodoxy. They're about, out of the million Eastern Orthodox in the United States, half of them are converts now. Hmm. Uh, that was a number of years ago that that statistic came out. A lot of people are being drawn to it because they're going from a uh An evangelical background where they don't have much of a sense of history, much of a sense of reverence. I mean, a lot of what calls itself evangelical and Protestant today is a pastor in skinny jeans giving a TED Talk back with a (laughs) praise band. And that's not worship. That's That's not what the church has historically done. And so the tendency is when they realize the emptiness of that is to swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme, and they end up embracing something that's honestly not that different. In that it's also unbiblical, but it's it's an older version of an appeal to the senses. What mm. and so Eastern Orthodoxy with its smells and bells, it, it's it's appealing to the senses, but it's another gospel. It's uh, it is not the biblical or historic faith of the church. You know Rome. Eastern Orthodox will attack Rome and and say, you know, this idea of papal infallibility is contrary to uh, three-quarters of Christian history. And Rome says, well, we don't care because we decide what's real history. Rome is not the historic faith. Eastern Orthodox is not the historic faith. Both of them have roots not in the scriptures or... The early church so much, as in some of the early counterfeits. You look back at the epistles in the New Testament; most of them are dealing with some kind of of heresy within the church. You have the Galatian heresy; uh, the Judaizers are saying that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Uh, first and Second John deal with Docetism, is what we call it. It's basically the idea that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. It's Gnosticism. You have have people in the days of the apostles trying to twist the gospel to suit themselves and the apostles standing against it. The death of the apostles didn't bring an end to those temptations. And so you see that over time there were faithful people uh, in the early church We don't think any of them were infallible. Uh, They were not apostles, but they were faithful people. They were unfaithful people. And just like today, there's a spectrum. No one was teaching for the first 300 and 400 years of the church many of the things that Rome and Eastern Orthodoxy insist have to be believed. Rome says that the bodily assumption of Mary, uh, which I'm getting old. I think what was that? Uh, 1954. That was declared dogmatic.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, essentially, that is as certain as the deity of Christ. And if you don't, if you don't believe it, if you publicly oppose that teaching, you you will be put out of the church. In theory, at least. Eastern Orthodoxy, people say, well, you know, don't you think that we can have pictures? That's not what Eastern Orthodoxy is claiming. Eastern Orthodoxy anathematizes anyone who refuses to venerate an icon. Um, yes, there's an issue of permissibility, but to, they often spin the question. They're not asking for permissibility. They're saying it is impermissible not to. Right venerate them as the and if you say that they are not the apostolic faith you're anathema anathema
0: right yeah it's not some middle position they're very clear it's requirement meaning it it's not a christian church without it yeah. and without the veneration do what they represent in their worship in fact um in a book on uh, introducing Eastern Orthodoxy that I <clears throat> read really carefully looking for these two issues that I think will be the theme for every issue we get to today, that of authority and that of authenticity. Um, he, he says that Eastern Orthodox theology, this is Andrew Louth, he says it starts. it starts with prayer. The theology is rooted in experience, let me, he says this: singing of sacred song, the sight of sacred architecture and art and garments, the smell of incense, the touching of sacred things, icons and relics, and the sense of other people standing there before
1: God. This is where we start. Yeah, it's the burning in your bosom. Yeah, <laughs> right. It, one, one of the one of the things that caused me to research this and to do the video. You know, there's a lot of material out there. There's not a lot of documentary-style stuff that really deals with the system. You know, there's been people who have debated icons or uh, debated various other facets of Eastern Orthodoxy. But my belief is that the biblical approach to the modern church is reformational you uh restoration says there's a great apostasy basically you you reject everything and you reinvent it from the ground up mormons obviously do that there are a lot of evangelicals who have the same yes. kind of idea that you know there's the apostles and there's me or maybe there's not even the apostles maybe it's just jesus Jesse. and me yeah and so there's a This restorationist mindset—it's me, my Bible, and my personal relationship with Jesus that I get to find any way I, I choose. That's very arrogant. The what we should be doing is looking to those who have run the race with faithfulness to the end and listen to what they say, not as if it's equal to Scripture. You know, sola scriptura doesn't mean you ignore tradition. It means that tradition is to be judged by scripture. But the the Protestant reformers were by definition reformational. They said, yes, God established a church, and yes, it has, like Israel of old, it has fallen into error. But the answer to that is not to burn it down and start over. The the answer is to keep going back to the word, back to your knees, back into fellowship with God's people. And instead of looking to uh, excuse schism, You try to reform. There are some things that are non-negotiable and require division. There was division in the early church. Uh, There was division over doctrine. Uh, John says that those who are saying that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, they're antichrist. And you're not to show them Christian hospitality. You're not to be partakers with them in their sin. There's biblical separation there's also separation over morals, 1 Corinthians 5. You have this man who was married as his, his father's wife, and Paul says, put the evil to her out from among you. And people say, well, that's unloving, that's unchristlike. You're, you're divisive, you're schismatic. No, there is biblical division. But there's also unbiblical division. And so we should be seeking Christian unity on the basis of truth. A lot of pleas for unity in this state, especially, um, have been on a lowest common denominator experience. And no, God has spoken, and God's word trumps everybody's experience. Yeah. The, um,
0: The idea that... Well, I guess maybe this is how to, how I should put it this is a theme that I've noticed when when reading this book on Eastern Orthodoxy as carefully as I can along with others is there is always this turn inward couched in the collective worship space that once again defined surrounded and quote defined by icons so when he lit, when he lists these sources of authority right there are scriptures but then if you keep reading right they're not they're not primarily this is him sources of reliable still less infallible information about religious matters rather christ stands at their center see the piety hides the undermining of the real authority of the apostles reflection on the scriptures by theologians why because the Bible is a living text
1: like a living constitution
0: that's exactly what it reminded me of these <laughs> Oliver Wo Holmes but remember though if you and, and if you're in the YouTube environment they've probably already encountered it it may even be in the algorithm next to your video mm-hmm. Josiah Trenum right yeah and what's he gonna say look at the look at the Protestant liberals and uses that to say hey we haven't changed so they, they use even the real threat of liberalism to get people into a church that subverts the authority of Scripture and hides liberalism in other forms, just 800 years, you know, what, the ninth century approved forms of liberalism
1: under the shared liturgy of the church. Honestly, that's the trajectory you see for a lot of these guys. They start out as um, Southern Baptist. They're liberal Southern Baptists, they go to the Episcopal Church, then they you know, the Episcopal Church is too obviously liberal and somewhat tyrannically liberal. <laughs> you yeah. Know, you 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 they they then they go to the Anglican church and there's lots of different flavors of Anglican out there. There's Anglo Catholic, there's yeah. there's there there are some that are actually um Solid old school yeah. Anglican. J. A. Packer comes to mind. Yeah, Packer got kind of weird uh, in his later years, but yeah, Pack, Packer in the '60s, wonderful, so wonderful stuff, so good. But um, these guys, they end up going. Uh, Josiah Trinum went from uh, Presbyterian Church of America, or uh, of America, to uh, Anglican to Eastern Orthodox. Eastern Orthodoxy, basically, so long as you don't deny the Trinity and so long as you uh, don't deny the veneration of icons, you can make you, you can pick and choose what kind of Eastern Orthodox you want to be. And, you know, you want, you want a bishop that celebrates homosexuality? You can find that. You, you want a, one that says that, you know, we are the great bastion against uh, sexual immorality? You can find a bishop who says that. But, no, the, it, is a, it is at its heart a man-centered authority. We judge scripture. We, don't, uh, we change it to suit ourselves. We don't seek to be changed by it. Mm-hmm. The, the Protestant Reformers, they listened to the early church, and they held things up to the light of God's word they didn't act as if they had dug it out of a hillside somewhere and that they were the first person, and the first people reading it. But there's a recognition that man-made traditions are often uh, camouflaged worldliness. These guys that are going from, um, into the Eastern Orthodox Church their morality, their piety is much really the same as it was as a liberal Southern Baptist. Uh, it's just got different trappings, and it camouflages it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: I'm, it, um, here's one thing that came to mind all the time. I, I remember in elementary school being taught the you know, rudimentary math, Right. And you're always told show your work, right? And then you go into algebra, you have to show your work. And I just thought that was so annoying. What if I have the right answer? Yes. And the math a good math teacher, and it is a good teacher, says, I want to see how you did your work. That's that is in a sense even more important than the answer because it shows something deeper. It shows the framework by which you can possibly even get a right answer. And this is this is kind of what I mean. This is so you could say, well, they don't pay attention to scholarship. So, which I mean in the West, they they're forced to, but you know, you don't see uh, debates over the authorship of Matthew, for example. Right. But look at their work. Listen to this. This is so shocking to me. And of course, bringing up how Protestant scholarship and even naming Boltman, of course, because that's, that's all Protestant scholarship is. Um, if that is, let's see, the faith in the sense of trust in the community of faith that is the church. If that is true, then it seems to me that it does not matter too much whether Matthew, for instance, was an apostle. The gospel was attributed to him because the church felt it was fundamentally apostolic and in some way, Matthewan, maybe because some of the stories concerned him. It is, if you like rather the case that it was because the witness of that gospel was felt felt to be genuinely apostolic that the church was happy about its attribution to Matthew not because Matthew actually wrote it with those gospels right it, so so basically this is this is the the bastion against liberalism right apostolic not meaning actually apostolic but because enough christians felt it was you know what they felt apostolic should be so, okay, they have the, the, the right answer, right? But mm-hmm. what? once again, the issue of authority, the issue of authenticity, you can see that kind of mindset being so prone to the very
1: myths Paul warned Timothy about. Yeah. The, when the liberal um, scholarship started questioning Christianity, we brought an enlightenment um, worldview which doesn't hold up to scrutiny. We, we are logical, or, you know, we, we are rational, but we're not hyper-rationalist. Um, these guys, like Bultmann, the, the fallacies of his um, materials have been shown by numerous people. One of my favorites is Linnemann, uh, did a couple of books. She was one of his students. But when the liberals attacked back in the 20s and 30s uh, in mainline Protestantism, some stood up and tried to actually engage their arguments and show the fallacies and show the reality of the historic faith. But a lot of people retreated into pietism. And pietism is, you know, um, uh, I, I know the Bible is true because it's true for me you know, if I, if I feel the, I feel, feel, you know, feel it. Yeah. And there is an inward witness. You know, sure. They're, they're, we don't, we, we, we don't divorce the spirit. You know, it's the spirit alone that, that bears witness the, uh, by and with the scriptures in the heart of man that, that fully able to persuade that they are the very word of God it's, uh, out of the larger catechism. Yes, there's a spiritual dimension, But what they do, what pietism does is it divorces that from everything else. Pietism allows you to do whatever you want. And maybe that's more orthodox, but it doesn't have to be. And there's nothing, when you've you've divorced yourself from the objective reality of the apostles' witness and their authority and um, that the scriptures don't have private interpretation... When you divorce yourself from that, it's very easy to drift into other things. One one of the things for a lot of people going into Eastern Orthodoxy, as a liberal Southern Baptist who wants to remake the faith to to suit themselves, they're having to stand against the um, historic understanding of what it means to be a Baptist. I mean, they'll take some, you know, it's like, They'll champion things like individual conscience and things like this. But to a great extent, Baptists have to sort of kind of admit that they're out of the Protestant background. I mean, many will deny that. But uh, Eastern Orthodoxy gives them great cover. It gives them a, a whole set of um, armaments against those who would criticize their liberalism, and it's like, well, you're just Protestants, and you were invented in 1517, and you know you wouldn't even know what the Bible was if we didn't give it to you, and you know you're 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 hyper rationalist because um, you don't accept all our miracles, and you know that you know Saint John of Damascus, excuse me, Saint John of San Francisco levitated when he prayed, and we have witnesses to that, and his body's incorruptible, and there are witnesses to that, and this and that and the other. And, Pietism allows you to, to um, your feelings are the ultimate ultimate basis of truth. Yeah, and so Eastern Orthodoxy gives you great cover for that because you know you're able to, to make the false assertion this is the historic faith and this is this and and you know there's forty thousand Protestant denominations. Uh, the reality is the way they count that. It is grossly inflated because they count every, every denomination in every country separately. So, Roman Catholicism, its Latin rite is in almost every country. Uh, it has other rites that are counted separately. So, out of that uh, 40,000, you have, uh, I think it's 370, are Roman Catholic churches. Over eight hundred are Eastern Orthodox churches. Mm. the The numbers that are counted, I think, um, I think that uh, Mormonism is counted one hundred and seventy times because it's in so many countries. And of course, Mormonism doesn't hold to a, to a um, to the Bible. It's not a solely scripture that has given us this. Uh, you you have people who have added to the Bible, groups like the Mormons, groups like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, who, you know, this is not sola scriptura. This is just everything that calls itself Christian.
0: Right. And just so the listeners know, this is not us speculating about it. So in Trenum's book, which is a response to the Reformers, in the chapter called The Heresies of Protestantism, he says the Protestant doctrine of Sola Scriptura is the source from which all other Protestant heresies flow. This is so because this dogma undermines the authority of the apostles. No, because that's the scriptures. Uh, no, of apostolic tradition,
1: which they get to define. Yeah. And we we deal with Trenton a lot in the video, um, partially because he, he went to a Presbyterian seminary. And I, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> both he, he, he speaks more clearly on some of these things. Um, and his lies are much more easily refutable. And I kind of enjoyed refuting them because he's an apostate. He, he was, um, a licentiate in the Presbyterian church in America, which is a sister denomination. And He graduated Westminster West in um, 1992. And the next year, uh, he had already passed through Anglicanism and was made an Eastern Orthodox priest. Hmm. Well, I uh, should we hit
0: a few? John of Damascus uh, features prominently in this. Why is he so key to their claims? And what was it, how did you approach looking more carefully at his work um, for the documentary?
1: Well, tying it into Trinum a little bit here, Trinum argues that, you know, we have church councils and that if we don't listen to the councils that we're making ourselves popes. And what we point out is councils contradict one another the The issue of icons was dealt with at the Seventh Ecumenical Council uh, at Second Nicaea in the eighth century, and people who don't know their history is like, you know, do you disagree with the seventh with the Seven Ecumenical Councils? And people, are like, well, I guess not. You know, if, I mean, they're historic <laughs> and this and that and the other. And the idea is, if if we don't accept. Uh, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, there's no reason that we're going to accept any of them. Our congregation repeats the Nicene Creed every Sunday. Yes, uh, we, we recognize Council of Nicaea is a wonderful, faithful affirmation of what the Scriptures clearly teach. Second Nicaea that takes place hundreds of years later is making things up. There had been a previous council, Council of Hieria, that had condemned the veneration of icons. It was it called itself the Seventh Ecumenical Council. Decades later, you have a new a new emperor who calls a new council, and they're like, uh, and basically they say, "No, that really wasn't an ecumenical council. We are. Uh, we're smaller, but we're but we're the true one." And the first council, Hieria, argued from the scriptures, Mm -hmm. and they came to conclusions very similar to what we would come to. We we would agree with them that icons are not biblical and not the apostolic faith. The second Nicaea appeals to John of Damascus, and John of Damascus had written three treatises in which he gives about 130-plus citations from the church Fathers, along with some biblical argumentation, to argue that icons are not only permissible, they are essential to the Christian faith. Yep. And so second Nicaea anathematized anyone who said that they were not the historic apost- and apostolic faith, and anathematized anyone who would not venerate them. That was rejected, Uh, by the Council of Frankfurt, the Council of Paris, and then the subsequent Council of Constantinople in the Eastern Church. But then Theodora came to the throne, and she declared, no, Second Nicaea is the authoritative thing. And so if you have a very superficial knowledge of church history, you hear... You know, here are these great councils that got together and they decided these things. And, you know, we're just standing with the historic church. Well, the historic church, you had councils that contradicted one another. It doesn't mean that we disregard them. It means that we, we have to have something that doesn't contradict. The apostles don't contradict one another. You know, people can pit Ephesians 2 against James 2 all they want, James and Paul were not contradicting one another. All you have to do is read verse 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians to see that uh, it's not what they portray. The apostles spoke with authority given them from from Jesus. They had the authority to bind and to loose, to authoritatively interpret the Old Testament. The same scriptures that Paul uh, describes as theonoustos, God breathed, Peter describes the writings of Paul as scripture. The church recognized them as such. The fundamental question is: Do we define? The, does the scripture, or do the ch- does the church define the scriptures, or do the scriptures define the church? And we can talk about that more later. But in terms of John of Damascus, the typical Protestant retort to Eastern Orthodoxy has been: Well, here's what the scriptures say, and here's what a couple of church fathers have said, and they just laugh. And they, they, have, they have these three treatises. They have an ecumenical council, and they have this, this these litany of witnesses. I couldn't find anyone who had actually engaged the arguments that John of Damascus made. Uh, after I finished the video, I found uh, Richard Price, a Roman Catholic scholar, had done some of this, he didn't go into the detail I did, but in, in, in the video in terms of um, his presentation. Okay. But essentially what you end up with is there are nine patristic citations in John of Damascus that predate the Council of Nicaea. Uh, four of them are from Dionysius the Areopagite, which when John is writing this in the... Um, late seventh century, he assumes to have been the earliest, most authoritative witness outside the scriptures. It's supposedly by the Dionysius who was converted by yeah. uh, the apostle Paul in the book mm-hmm. of Acts. And you have all these uh, letters from Dionysius, um, including a letter to the, the apostle John, is one of the ones that's cited by John of Damascus. And for people in the 7th and 8th centuries, they thought these things are really authoritative. Reality is that those four citations from, John, uh, from Dionysius are forgeries.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And even Eastern Orthodox, we have a, a clip of um, Archbishop Galitzen admitting that they, these were not actually written before the 6th century, and that, therefore, they could not have been by the first century person. Someone wrote something that was supposed to be very early, very apostolic, to promote something that wasn't. It wasn't written by Dionysius by the Areopagite. And, in, I mean, it, it's not just a matter, you know, like Epistle of Barnabas. Uh, doesn't actually, I don't think it actually claims to be written by Barnabas, and, um, you know, there could be other people named Barnabas, but it's somehow historically it got attributed to, to Barnabas, and some people say, you know, well, it's a fake because it wasn't. Uh, it, this is something written in the first or, or you know, around 140 AD. Um, it doesn't claim to be that. Right. The writings of Dionysius, Explicitly claim to be these things,
0: as an as well another text we get to, and that's a that's a crucial distinction to help the listener. Caught there's a difference between a text being attributed to somebody that is questioned and a text itself claiming to be written by someone, so, and that being proven. On, so, a, I mean, if it's written hundreds of years later, it obviously cannot be the Dionysius that is mentioned in Acts.
1: Seventh-day Adventists um, love to try to claim that the Epistle of Barnabas, which destroys their whole narrative that Constantine was the sun worshiper who seduced the church into <laughs> changing its day of worship to Sunday and all this other garbage. You know, um, they try to dismiss all this by saying, well, clearly it's a forgery. It's not written by Barnabas. It doesn't say it was written by Barnabas. Right. And, you know, when um, there's a difference between a later misattribution Clearly, it's written in the early church, and it and it blows away their whole narrative. As far as the Eastern Orthodox, Dionysius is being appealed to as um, one of the I think he's one of the, one of the first bishops, uh, supposedly. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's a really clear narrative of who he is and what he's supposedly done, and it's basically like the Donation of Constantine. It's a medieval forgery, right? And somebody gives you a copy of something and says, well, here, this is, this is from Constantine. How do you know otherwise? Well, I've never heard of this. Well, in the Middle Ages, it's, there were things that people hadn't heard of before. And a lot of people, if it, if it fit with their narrative, then they, they would embrace it.
0: Yeah. And that's one thing that I I thought was very powerful in the video is you showing the double standard that so many of the Eastern Orthodox will point out the forgeries that were the basis for, you know, the papacy and and some things in the West, by the way, forgetting to point out that one of them is this pseudo Dionysius, which was even prioritized uh, in tradition in Aquinas, very highly because he believed the claim. But they don't look they don't take that same lens toward their own.
1: Yeah. I I got off on a tangent there. Let me make clear there's there's nine citations that are prior to Nicaea in the fourth century that are supposed to prove that icons are the historic faith of the church. Four of them are from Dionysius, they're clear forgeries. Um another one is the legend of Abgar. Uh, that he appeals to this, this story that uh, King Abgar of Edessa sent a messenger to Jesus and asked him for a um, an image. And Jesus supposedly took his face and put it into a cloth and miraculously an image appeared and it was taken back to Edessa and became a focus of devotion there. And, you know, it's like... He, Here's something that's supposed to clearly prove the historicity of icons. Jesus made the first icon. Problem with that is, the first, uh, we, we document this in the video, the first documented uh, correspondence between uh, Abgar and Jesus is in uh, Eusebius's ecclesiastical history, fourth century. And instead of requesting an image, he sends a a messenger to Jesus asking that Jesus come and heal him. And Jesus says he'll send a a, a disciple after his resurrection to heal him. And we have testimonies to this supposed letter, which appears to be just one more folk war. But then about the beginning of the 5th century, the story changes to where the messenger who was sent was the king's painter, and he painted a, an image of Jesus. And you really don't see the, um, this idea that Jesus miraculously created an image until I think it's the 6th or 7th century. But John of Damascus, who's writing in the, in the late 7th century, um, early, um, I, think he, I think he overlaps into the early 8th century. Uh, his dates escape me. Uh, enjoy your youth. It gets hard to remember <laughs> details as you get older, but you know he he's, he's dealing with the late with the last version, which is not that old, but he's saying it's first century, just like the the, the writings of Dionysius were supposed to be first century. Well, it's not. Um. So there's five of the the nine right there. Uh, another one was the the, the story of um. Eustace, um, who was originally named Placida, and if you've if, uh, if you've ever seen the Jagermeister logo, <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's based on this legend that Placida was out hunting a stag and he tracks it down, and this blazing cross that turns into an icon of Jesus appears in its antlers, and. The deer explains that he is Jesus come to, to speak to him. Uh, once again, this is supposed to be late first century, early second century, but it's it's fifth century. John of Damascus is writing over five hundred years after all these, after the death of the apostles. He's uh, writing six hundred years. But because he gives so many citations, um, most of them are um, much, much later, and they are genuine because images do become very much part of the life of the church. But what we demonstrate is they were universally, fairly universally rejected. It doesn't mean that there weren't some people making images. uh, There was a, a... Third-century church in Dura Europus. We show the images; they're not icons, and they're not even in the roo- in the main room. Uh, we have one of their priests admitting that the iconostas uh, that uh, the wall of icons that they have uh, was something that developed hundreds of years after the apostles. This is not the historic faith. This is this is tradition begetting tradition begetting tradition. And as we try to demonstrate, it leads them further and further from Christ. Just like the Pharisees' traditions, they claim they went back to Moses, but they didn't. It doesn't mean that Moses didn't teach things orally. It's that the things that the church was responsible for were written down. Um, One of the things we keep coming back to in the video is trying to promote Jesus' view of the Scriptures. Jesus appealed to the scriptures against their traditions. Sadducees only re- only accepted the first five books of the Bible. Jesus showed that the resurrection that was clearly taught by the prophets they rejected was even taught in the book of Exodus. And so the scriptures are the standard. They're put down in black and white. So we have something explicit to define who we are supposed to be.
0: Right. Where is that authority and is there authenticity with it? Um, I think it, it just to reiterate, just so people hear this, the claim of the so-called Seventh Ecumenical Council, Nicaea two in seven eighty seven, is that this is the universal faith. Mm-hmm. It is definitive of the faith. It's not an option, it's not just saying pictures are okay. They are necessary as part of the worship of the church, and have always been a part of the worship of the church, and that it is everywhere a part of the worship of the church.
1: Yeah, the the language of, um, um, oh my my brain is shot of, um, of Lorraine, who's the 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 saint they quote, um, Vincent Vincent of Lorraine. They um, they say that this has been believed always, everywhere, by all. Yes. And what we demonstrate in the video is, no, it's not. Right. Right. Even
0: in the council itself, there's a section where they criticize certain churches for not doing it, which is ironic. It's like, well, if it's being done everywhere, why do you have to? (laughs) Yeah.
1: What we try to demonstrate is that there has always been resistance to these man-made traditions, the, 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 the church was not monolithic mm-hmm. Yes, asceticism did arise and yes it it, it affected people. It doesn't mean we reject everything about them. August Augustine, Chrysostom, they believed if they if they came to faith, they had to become monks. yeah you know there's no it's not this is not a higher calling. this is the calling to all Christians. And so Augustine, There are things that I would strongly disagree with Augustine. And yet at the same time, Augustine uh, deals with what the scriptures clearly teach in a whole host of other areas. And so the church has always been a mix. Um, the, The apostles had a unique authority and it was attested with miracles. The church we are called to hear the church, but the church's authority is subordinate to the word of God. The only authority the church has is to is ministerial and declarative of that word. And throughout history, there have been those who have said the church trumps the scriptures, and people say, no, the scriptures trump the church. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that we're schismatics. It doesn't mean that we turn everything into a divisive issue, but it does mean that if you require us to to venerate icons, we have to say no. Right, And um, I love the story about Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. He was supposedly asked, are you a Hussite? Uh, John Huss was uh, a follower. uh, He had learned a lot from Wycliffe. He was a Bohemian um, priest. And everything that Luther had heard about Huss had been negative. You know, he was heretic, schismatic, this and that, the other, blah, blah, blah. And so he's asked, are you a Hussite? Like, no, I'm not a Hussite. But then he was provided with some books by Huss, and he comes back and he says, I stand corrected, I am a Hussite. (laughs) This isn't new. This isn't novel. And we try to demonstrate that, you know, John Calvin quoted from the Church Fathers, I can never remember the exact number. I think it's like 850-some-odd times in his final final edition of the Institutes. The, the French Confession explicitly embraces uh, continuity with the early church. People act as if, I mean, you, you read the comments on the video, it's like, your church didn't start until 1517. You know, yeah. No, no. It, it, it's a fake history it's as fake as the story of the Lamanites and, and the Nephites you know and there's just as little evidence for it <laughs> it's well and, and I think this is
0: this is the straw man maneuver right We're saying scripture is the authority even up against the church and by the way, scripture demonstrates this was true in Israel and you know Ezra Nehemiah is a great place to look where once again, Where's the source of authority to reform Israel? In the scriptures. In the scriptures. But they t- turn that into scripture apart from the church. Scripture without the need of a church.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: And it's, in, once again, to show this isn't a straw man, once again, this book, For Eastern Orthodoxy, this is a quote from a book explaining Eastern Orthodoxy. For Eastern Orthodoxy, it is prayer and worship that our faith is defined and refined, that that is that is what it is. Um, and notice this: the centrality of prayer and worship prevent us from narrowing down our faith to some human construction. And my note is, is prayer liturgy not a human construction? And, and they found that that was enough. That's an ex- exact quote. That was enough. Prayer and liturgy.
1: One, one of the things you'll see with a lot of Mormons, a lot of Eastern Orthodox, a lot of others, they will make truth claims against their critics. And then they dematerialize into mysticism. Um, with John of Damascus of the nine citations prior to Nicaea, six of them are demonstrable uh, frauds. One of them is clearly a misunderstanding on John's part because the uh, I think it's like five chapters earlier in the same work. Clement of Alexandria says yeah. that works of art cannot be sacred and divine. Right. The other two are sources that are supposed to be pre-Nicaea, but we have no attestation of them prior to John of Damascus in the 7th century. Um, John of Damascus attributed a lot of things, like uh, some of the things, to, he attributed things to Athanasius in the 4th century. That we know were much later, like sixth-century writings that were just misattributed. Yeah, you know, they weren't—they weren't, they weren't fake or they weren't frauds, but somebody at one point thought that they were by Athanasius. That's how they labeled the the, the manuscript, and then it becomes clear that uh, if you actually read it through, it, it's—it was—it was a misunderstanding, and so um, they have nothing through the first roughly four centuries of the church that support what they insist is the apostolic faith and has to be believed by everybody right and if you challenge that you know what you get is mysticism you, I mean you'll get you know 40,000 denominations you know the, the, the chaos of Protestantism <laughs> and all this other stuff and of course um, they like to call Mormons Protestants which Mormons should cringe over as much as we do
0: (laughs) i agree i agree and you you mentioned even that he disputed evidence that went against him including i think his name was eusebius
1: eusebius epiphanius uh uh he called them counter he called them forgeries (laughs) projection Um, yeah because you know here, here are guys in the fourth century Opposite sides of the Arian controversy, and yet they're speaking with one voice against the veneration of images. Uh, there was a council, uh, the Synod of Elvira, um, before the Council of Nicaea, so very beginning of the 4th century, that prohibits images from being put on the walls of the churches. Um, they, he tries to explain all these things away, and he gives spins, you know, it's like, well... The second commandment can't really mean what it has been understood to mean because uh, you know what the iconoclast would understand it to mean um, because Jesus or God commanded them to make uh, the ark. He commanded them to make the golden uh, or the the brazen serpent. Well, let's look at those things. Uh, number one, God's not pictured on that ark.
0: Um, in fact it goes out of its way to show he's not. Exactly. The throne's on the top and there's nothing there. There's nothing there.
1: And you know, they'll they'll point to Psalm ninety nine five and say, um, that this is where I think every English translation I've found just about has has said, you know, worship at his footstool. You'll get people saying, No, it says worship his footstool. Oh. And that this is supposed to this is supposed to, to say venerate icons. Well, God's not pictured there. But just a few verses later, it says uh, the very same construction in Hebrew. It's, it's the lamed prefix. They would it would require us to venerate his, you know, to, to venerate his holy hill. Um, no, we're not supposed to be venerating Mount Zion. Right. Um, we're supposed to be venerating the Lord at Mount Zion, at His footstool. Um, the only images on that thing to be venerated would be the angels. And that's not what we're being called to. It's exalt the Lord, yep. Yahweh. Right. Um, Hezekiah is commended that the brazen serpent, when they began to uh, burn incense to it, when they began to venerate something that God, you know, an image, Hezekiah destroyed it. Yeah, And so, yes, God told, they Yes, there are images in the temple, but who saw them? Did, did the people, you know, did they bring the idea that they, they it's like, well, they did the ark. How was the ark transported, covered? Where Where does the ark stay? In the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest can see it and only once a year. Right. And, you know, but, you know, back when it was in the tabernacle and they would move the tabernacle, they would cover it. Israel wasn't being called to, to come and adore the ark and, uh, or venerate, you know, they, they try to differentiate. Well, we're not worshiping, we're, we're venerating. Right. Second commandment forget, forbids both. In, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, um, you're not to uh, proskuneo, you're not to right. bow to right. an image. Right. Um, you're not to serve them. You're not to, uh, it, it forbids, you know, they say, oh, well, this. Is, you know, the Catholics talk about Latria and Julia. Yeah, they do the same distinction. The, 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 the Greeks say, you know, Latria and proskenesis. Both of them are forbidden. Right. It's, it's an artificial distinction. Um, the, you know, they'll, they'll try to say, well, you know, wouldn't a widow want to kiss the, the the image of her husband that's not the same thing
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the church isn't requiring you must kiss this image right to be Christian to be a Christian or right. you will be anathematized
0: right you will be cursed right that and that <laughs> that that's why you you have to see the I guess what the intensity by which the point is made, because I feel like so much, especially evangelicalism in America, they're just going to get caught up in whether they can watch the chosen or not. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> I'll be I mean, right. I mean, that's what it's going to be. Is like, can I have my favorite picture of Jesus? They're not going to see. No, Eastern Orthodoxy. It's not that. Oh, it's permitted, though. That's part of it. It's that it's required, but even then, it's regulated in the church. Itself, Yes. Um, and that this is apostolic tradition, in, including you show in the video. Ironically, one thing that John doesn't even claim, but is now claimed, even by Josiah Trenum, a Westminster grad, is that Luke made an icon of Mary. Therefore, we yes. do know what they actually look like.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, this, this is, you see Trenum making this argument. Um, I, I, I forget the, we have several clips of people making this claim. Uh, It is a very contemporary claim. And yet you go back and you can't find anybody arguing this for the first 500 years of the church. Right. And all the evidence is contrary to it, but it's, it's a tradition that somebody claimed it at one point for whatever reason. And it's just been passed on. And it's, it's a big lie. It gets told enough times people believe it. Right. So that's, that's where it is. It's, Once again,
0: the issue of authority and authenticity. I want this to sink in for the listeners, authority and authenticity. And for them to claim on one hand that we are radically new and on the other hand, admit that these arguments go way back is an irony as well. What can settle it? Okay, Josiah's reforms. There's an ironic um, insight from Margaret Barker that this is the Protestant Reformation of ancient Israel. I, well, yeah, <laughs> but based on what? That's the issue. Heresies are old too. Just because it's old doesn't make it true either,
1: right? Yeah. And that's that's one of the things, and maybe this will segue into the into the Protoevangelium. The um, you have icons contrary to everything in the early church, uh, con- contrary to Scripture. It is the, these are medieval uh, fabrications but there are older ones. Um, something being old doesn't make it true. Right. You you had heretics in the early church, um, and the proto-evangelium is, 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 you know, as far as the authority, they'll, they'll cast up, you know, uh, Paul and Thessalonians, you know, telling the Thessalonians, you know, whatever he gave right. them orally. Orally, yep. Um Eastern Orthodoxy can't provide a single word of Paul's teaching outside of what's in the Scripture. They simply assert that whatever they do that's contrary to the explicit teaching of Scripture must be by oral tradition. And it's like, that's a wax nose. It's whatever you want it to be. That's what you want it to be.
0: And that's why you can have, what, um, some Eastern Orthodox that will say that we have hearts of darkness, we're going to hell for confessing the filioque which we don't have time to get into, but it's that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son. But then on the other hand, you have a David Bentley Hart, who's a universalist. <laughs> and, and this is in the same church, yes. but but watch out for the PCUSA. Watch out for the PCUSA. See the boogeyman. And this is, this is where I think, regardless of whether evangelicals take our, you know, our same view on some of these issues, you need to hear the framework in which it's being debated and ask yourself, what is the authority and what is actually authentic tradition? And, and
1: once again, sorry, sorry. One of the guys that really liked the video from Russia sent me a clip of a Russian Orthodox priest blessing uh, about a week ago a new monument to Stalin. Yeah, wow. And you you bring that up and they're like, well, that's not fair. That's this. Thing. And it's like, well, then how is it you're bringing up what the mainline Presbyterian church is doing in terms of, uh, LGBT garbage. Right.
0: Right. In, in fact, do you, do you want to mention that some of the criticism you've received is for, um, that video clip of patriarch Kirill, no. Kirill, Yeah. Um, who's over what? Half of orthodoxy
1: over half. Yeah. I mean, you, when you add up the numbers of Russia and Ukraine, which, you know, um, part of the Ukrainian church is trying to split from him and Bartholomew's throwing gas on that fire. Um, But together they're over half of world orthodoxy. And, you know, it was supposedly dishonest of me to quote him in context. Right. I, uh, he says that, uh, you know, there's a, there's a war going on and that if, in fulfillment of duty, someone loses their life. This is a sacrifice. They're laying down their life for others, and that that sacrifice will wash away their sins. Yep. It's 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 the Crusades 2.0. It, it's it's the idea that if you die for Mother Russia, um, and since he's over Ukraine, you know, if you die for Mother Ukraine, um, that death... Will make you acceptable in the sight yeah. of God, and you know it, it's it's the Galatian heresy, yeah, all over again.
0: Yeah, just what uh, collectivized, horizontalized, nationalized, and we did have this in liberalism in the West too, right? I yes. mean, the the. Liberal-Protestant push for World War I, and that didn't yeah. start there either. I'm, the, I'm resisting war, a tangent on the battle hymn of the Republic.
1: <laughs> the, the war to end all wars.
0: Right. And it, that it was pushed in what they made the gospel was democracy. Yes. And then we got to you know yes. democratize the world in the name of Jesus or whatever. I, to, there's a couple loose ends I want to hit, but just on that criticism particularly, I just want to point out that Louth in his book on Eastern Orthodoxy does talk about The living voice in the church, in the section on a a theology, in the hierarchy of theology. But scriptures, reflection on scriptures, synods, councils, of course, which ones? And then the living voice of the church in the bishops. Quote, we hear this living voice in the bishops. They have a special grace, rightly to discern the word of truth. And their voice is not merely human, but safeguarded, inspired by God's help or grace. That's not me. That's an Eastern Orthodox scholar explaining Eastern Orthodoxy.
1: Yeah. The charisma of all of us. Right. Unless, unless they unless don't you, agree. <laughs> in, yes, exactly. Yeah. So Patriarch Kirill, uh, I had Eastern Orthodox, you know, how dare I quote him? He's, he's, you know, a political hack. Uh, I had other people saying there's nothing's wrong with what he said. I had other people saying, you know, it was just, un, it was just dishonest to quote him because not everyone agreed with him. Um, no one can show that we took him out of context. I mean, it's... it's or mistranslated a, or... No, no. I mean, it's the same translation you'll find on uh, the AP. I had it checked by two different native speakers. Uh, Reuters. Um, I think even... I think it was even um, maybe the, the, the Russian news agency mm-hmm. translated. I don't know. But, um, you know, it, it's an accurate translation. And it's a, like a... A minute long clip, and the context is clear. But you know, it, it's it's like it's unfair to quote um, Bruce R. McConkie. Well, it, right? It, that's what it reminds me of. Is when he's, when, yeah. it would have been unfair to quote him when he was
0: alive. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, right. It would, I mean, it'd be like I quote Nelson, yes. like, "Well, I don't agree," or whatever, and it's it's like okay. I, I mean, what is Mormonism at that point? What well, is
1: orthodoxy if well, all it is is a retreat into the ambiguous? Well, I mean, with, with Mormonism, uh, if, if Nelson says something that's embarrassing, they'll say, well, that's not a statement of the first presidency. Yeah, yeah. But then, you know, you, have, you, can you, show you, that. You, you can show them where there were statements of the first presidency that have contradicted one another. Yep. And you say, then what is your ultimate authority? It's a self-contradictory one. Mm-hmm. Scriptures are not self-contradictory. Yeah. They contradict a whole lot of supposed modern prophets and apostles and right. infallible churches and lots of other things out there, but no, they don't contradict one another. Only if people twist them and try to create conflict where there's no conflict.
0: Right. And so, a few loose ends. I want before moving on to the Proto Vigiliam and James, which I want to hit hard because there's a definite Mormon connection that I want to point out. But just, I, I hope we've been going through the LDS manual all year. There's not a lesson in which they don't emphasize images in some form, whether video or pictures and impressions. And indeed there was a, a lesson where literally the lesson was, I think it was, um, gethsemane guess but it was one of the passion week ones um, where they said, pick a picture This is the manual for teachers put it in front of the class and have them put on music, you know, emotional music, and then have the students of the class write down their impressions from the picture and then see what the Holy ghost is revealing to them. Yeah. So, um, okay. It might not have tied to the eight hundreds, (laughs) but, um, and I just, I I mean, for, for people who want to say this is no, John of Damascus is a huge deal. They have cited him, and and that includes people in the West.
1: Oh, but these Rome, Rome ever him, since Rome declared him a doctor of
0: the Church, right? Ever since he's been their authority he, on this issue.
1: He 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 was he was uh, condemned as a heretic at the Council of Hieria, but the later Second Council of Nicaea declared him a saint. Right, right, <laughs> and and you know to. To be fair,
0: right, he does oppose some heresies, but I just find it so ironic, though, that—and and this is another angle that's often missed—is in the Reformation, the rediscovery of not only better manuscripts, but also of Hebrew, yeah. right? I mean, the, you when you look at the word game that's played, whether you separate veneration whatever— that doesn't work in the Hebrew. And when that's pointed out, it was called a Jewish heresy by John of Damascus. You can't listen to the Jews on that. You mean on Hebrew? You can't listen to the Jews <laughs> on the language, how the language yeah. works. So that's, I I hope that the people who engage with LDSM, I hope any LDS listeners happen to be listening. Hear the similarities though. We are consistent here. We're trying to be anyway and saying, what is the authority? And the- uh, yeah,
1: yeah. I've been ministering here for over 25 years, and I've I've heard people say, you know, uh, you know, why don't you attack other people? Number one, I'm not attacking anybody. I'm defending the truth against those who denounce it. Um, uh, I didn't pick the fight long before I was ever born. Uh, Pearl of Great Price, Joseph Smith History, Chapter One says uh, Presbyterianism isn't is not true. Right. It says that um, Joseph wasn't to join any of the existing churches because all their professors are corrupt and all their creeds are an abomination. Well, we have the same creed that the Presbyterian Church had in uh, the 19th century and centuries before. And um, you you call my faith uh, an anath uh, or uh, an abomination inside right, of God? Right, right. Do I get to respond? Right. Um, Eastern Orthodoxy has anathematized the biblical faith. I don't hate Mormons. I don't hate Eastern Orthodox. I do call them to be reconciled to God and to deal with what the apostle, the real apostles said, that unlike the supposed successors in the Mormon church, they worked real miracles, not behind closed doors that you get whispered about here or there, but out in the open. And unlike the supposed successors of the apostles in these ecumenical councils, you know they they agreed with one another and they worked miracles. You you will have claims of miracles from Eastern Orthodox uh, saints. They hold up about as well as the Mormon ones do. They're qualitatively different. And you know Pentecostals they have their miracles. Um, Michael, Michael, um, Brown claims he's raised the dead. Oh, um, not that there was anybody there to take a pulse or, you know, a doctor to examine, but, um, somebody said the guy was dead, uh, before he prayed for him and then he was alive afterwards. So he says he raised the dead it's like, that doesn't count. Yeah. Um. You compare that to healing a man born blind. Um, You know, if there there are numerous, I mean, you know, there there are several qualifications for um, someone to be a true prophet. But if they're really, if if the Mormon Church is really the restoration of all things, why are they not emptying the hospitals? Um, why aren't they healing all who come who come to them like the apostles did? And yes, there is an end of the charismata, even at the you know at the end of the apostolic age, because there it was attestation to their authority that it was authentic. But um, yeah, the supposed successors all around don't live up. They don't say that they don't have the same message, and they don't have the same attestation.
0: Right, and
1: these are historical claims
0: that we defend on the grounds of history, mm-hmm. not retreat and treat it about the same as myth, which is also popular all over the place, uh, the rise of Jordan Peterson, Carl Jung, and even Eastern Orthodoxy here.
1: One, one of one of our videos on our channel is the Bible versus Bart Ehrman. Yeah. Uh, we don't have to hide from the skeptics. We don't have to... No. We, We've done debates with atheists at the University of Utah because we believe no one has anything to fear from the truth but liars. Mm-hmm. Uh, atheism is shown to be absurd. Yeah, they can make you know they can if you have a British accent and you sneer enough and you uh, mock enough, you can sound intelligent. But it doesn't survive cross examination by anybody who knows what they're doing. Right. You thought
0: on a what? presuppositional level, level, would yes. and and avoids the selective skepticism. That's also something I've noticed here as a theme, right? Yes. Where LDS, they'll be, you know, nearly gullible on some of the claims they make, not recognizing the obvious discrepancies. You know, like even the Brigham Young appearing as Smith. When's the first time you have, you ever have an account of that? You know, so the, almost gullible in the level of trust for the stories they hear. And yet they will go hyper-skeptical on any claim dealing with the Bible. And um, though maybe not to that extreme, you see some of that in Eastern Orthodox apologetics because once
1: again, Scripture can't be enough. It cannot be what it it itself claims of itself. One one of the, there was a uh, response video by a couple of Eastern Orthodox that basically tried to portray me as a hyper-skeptic and they said you know if he, if he held the bible to the same standard he holds this uh he have to reject it it's like i already have no it's not it's not um there are demonstrable fictions um you you can you know they they didn't like that um i showed the 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 um you know there's saints like um saint paul of thebes we have no real evidence for him outside of a, a biography done by Jerome. And it, it includes things that are clearly fictional. Uh, we have a talking satyr, um, you know, half man, half goat, and, um, that's in the story. We have um, other things that, and he says, you know, if you're skeptical, one of these beings was caught as body preserved in salt and given to the emperor Constantine. Uh, it's a worldview that the lines between truth and error are blurred. Um, you know, St. Mary of Egypt, they have these very elaborate stories, but they're long after the date. You know, they're hundreds of years later they after they supposedly, supposedly happen. And they have details like, you know, she got three loaves of bread, she ate half of one and then lived for years on the other two and a half, um, and you can you can trace a progression. One of the ones I wanted to get in the video, but I couldn't figure out how to fit it in there because there's just so much stuff. My personal favorite was Saint Macarius of e- of Alexandria, who supposedly lived for a year on one sixth of an olive, and. You, you show how these stories evolve. You show how these things, and they're like, well, then you just m- must not believe in miracles at all. Like, it, the, no. Yeah. No, it's... Selective. Um, I don't believe that Oral Roberts saw a 900-foot-tall Jesus in the desert demanding that he raise millions of dollars or he was going to kill him. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't believe the apostles. Right. Right.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, history, history matters, but it can't provide its own. And this is just something that, you know, they will say, well, you know, you have a text and there's going to be things that are unwritten about that text. Okay. Fair enough. But be consistent. What about tradition and what it comes from, and what is more stable, and what actually goes to the apostles? What do you guys claim about actually going to the apostles? Well, it's either this really broad can't get into the details because every time you look, you find out John of Damascus's sources don't work, or so you got to make it really broad, or you make it so narrow as to exclude the scriptures itself as an authority. Um,
1: if, if if Rome. Roman Eastern Orthodoxy both have to admit that the the Bible is infallible. Yeah, right, inerrant, infallible. And, 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 yeah. and, and you know, if they haven't maintained the Bible, they can't maintain anything else. Right. Uh they admit it comes from the apostles, but they sub- sub- subordinate it to other things. Mm-hmm. That's that's the gist of it. Right. the The idea they keep promoting is, well, you wouldn't have the Bible if not for us. You know, where, where is your authoritative list? Well, it comes from the church. Well, how do we know that? We, we deal with some of this in the Roman Catholic video we did a couple of years ago. Um, and they say, well, this is circular reasoning, and it's, and it's self-defeating. Every ultimate, every presuppositional argument right. is fundamentally, um, the reasoning from it is going to be circular. You have to start at some point. The question becomes, are we consistent in our argumentation from that point? Mm -hmm. Uh, The scriptures, uh, we can be consistent. Their position, they can't be. And so God has spoken in these things. Uh, The church, Paul sending Timothy with a letter to a church, the church didn't have to do a council to get leading from the holy spirit whether to receive this as from from paul it clearly came from paul paul writes his epistle to the to the romans he later goes there and is able to confirm yes that's what i sent you does the do we need an infallible church to tell us that the epistle to the romans actually came from from paul no what they're trying to do is is, uh, make the church, which is being corrected by the apostles, the authority over the apostles.
0: Right. It, whether it, whether they acknowledge that or not, that's what's happening. Yes. And some will just openly acknowledge that. And in fact, uh, including in the East, um, where um, they will say that the same Holy Spirit that's behind the Scriptures is behind the her- behind the church. And therefore, you cannot pit them against each other. So they they have merged the bride and the bridegroom so much. They will not let the bridegroom speak. They will not let the bridegroom... And, and that's why we started with where we did with Timothy. Here is the apostle telling Timothy, knowing he's not going to be around forever. Yep. This is what you do. Stay true to the scriptures. Stay true to preach the word, <laughs> including <laughs> exhort, correct these words. This is not something we're waiting for Martin Luther on. This is what Paul himself said about the relationship of the apostolic authority to the church. And it wasn't, hey, just continue in your office even. you know. Yes. So I, I want to point out that that's why we, we recite the Nicene Creed in absolutely mean every word.
1: Mm-hmm. Even the filioque.
0: In, <laughs> including the filioque. It, maybe some other time we should do a deep dive on that because it needs... It, i think it's a joke it's it's <laughs> it's it's a big deal for them it's the chief heresy of the west well this is the way that they just it,
1: it's the chief it's the chief heresy of the west in that this is how they can excuse themselves i think so um uh, the the was clearly taught in the early church um it, it's taught in scripture it is it's the spirit of christ And it's this abstraction that, uh, they're trying, uh, it's, it's basically they're, you know, they're, they're shocked. (laughs) Right. So that they, you know, this, you know, how dare you say what the church has been saying through all these centuries? Um. We're going to, we're going to announce that this is, is this great heresy so that, you know, we're the one true church that's left. Right. Sure. We're mainly based in Russian, uh, Ukraine, and we've got a bunch of, um, American converts to, uh, Antiochian, um, Orthodox church. How much of the, how much of that is actually anywhere else in the world? Right. Not much, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's a fad. And yeah. And fits their narrative.
0: It is interesting that this used to be something that Rome used to be really firm on in defending was the Filioque. Um, We should say it's in Augustine as well. But um, in 2004, right, they had a shared service, um, the Patriarch Constantinople and I think John Paul II, Mm -hmm. um, in which they recited the Nicene Creed without it. So anyway... Kind of interesting. But anyway, no, sorry, not to get detracted there. I do want to point out, though, this, this idea of resurrection happening in history and with creeds, and then we'll move on. Just just I want to hit this home. This is not straw man. This is what he says. Faith in the resurrection is not about assessing some historical fact. It is about encountering the risen Lord. See that?
1: Oh, it sounds so warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? Doesn't
0: it? Yeah. And what did Paul say? If Christ is not risen... Are, we are the most to be pitied. He didn't say, then lean into your heart, it's true enough. Or yes. it's, a, it's a true story in this mythical Jordan Peterson kind of way. Right. If it didn't... Ha- now, is the fact alone enough either? No, but that's what they will do. They'll say, you're just hype. All you care about is reason or philosophy or something. But then they use that. It's a straw manning. And then, yeah, and then do that retreat into the mysticism that they can uniquely provide in their liturgy.
1: Right. It's... Because we make rational arguments against them, they they basically kick up as much dust as they can that, you know, we're hyper-rationalist, you know, the Bible couldn't stand up, uh, there's, uh, this leads to anarchy, look at all the divisions, blah, blah, blah. Let's do everything other than actually look at the the evidence. Right. And let's not look at what the actual early church said. Right. But it's... One of the thing, one of the we, we before we before we started recording, um, the theme you will see over and over from Mormons, from Eastern Orthodox, from Roman Catholics, from so many others, overwhelm people, confuse them enough to where they basically throw up their hands and say, "Whatever, I'll just do this." Yeah, and you know this feels right. The the historic faith of the church isn't all that complicated. Mm-hmm. Christ is God. He was sacrificed. He is our only righteousness. So much, of the, so much of the confusion comes from people trying to undermine that. Yes, we are called to holiness, but that holiness is not what makes us right with God. It's the fruit of having been made right with God. Mm-hmm. It's the fruit of the regeneration. Mm-hmm. We we deal with it in the in the video. You know, there are three big problems uh, that we see that we have in scripture. We have hearts of stone, Ezekiel 36. In the Psalms it's called a serpent's heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, our hearts are desperately wicked, deceitful above all uh, are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Um, we have bad hearts. We have a bad record. We've committed sins that demand judgment. And we are spiritual lepers. We're unclean and make everything we touch unclean. Christ comes to solve all three problems. He gives us a new heart that loves him. He takes our sins upon himself so that we can be clothed in his perfect righteousness, and he puts his Holy Spirit in us. And it, this is not works righteousness. This is the new birth. This is that Christ is my righteousness, but the same spirit that gave me faith gave, indwells me and sanctifies me. And yes, unbelievers are outside the church and inside the, the visible church. And what I keep telling people is does it doesn't lead you back to your knees, back to the Word, and back into fellowship with God's people. In, in Eastern Orthodoxy, Christ has been supplanted in practical piety. Uh, yes, they make images of Jesus. You have to look directly above your head in most of their, uh, in most of their churches. What you see in front of you is a giant Mary holding a little Jesus. And that's honestly the real focus. Mary, as we document in the video, Mary is the way to God. You cannot go to God except through Mary. Not just as her part in the virgin birth, but you have to go to Mary. Um, Mary's more compassionate than Jesus. We document this in their view. So you know, you end up with a Jesus who's not that compassionate, not that great a savior. You know, you have to go out and shed your blood in battle. You have to you have to starve yourself to death. You have yeah. to um you have to beat yourself with a flagella, you have to do this or that or the other, you know. Yep. Um that's not biblical holiness. Right. Anyway.
0: It, it just seems like the pattern if scripture is not enough. Eventually, the cross will not be enough either. That's it. Uh, to I mean, and once again, if you have this view of the church that, and they say this explicitly, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, it can't be wrong. We're doing it. Yeah, <laughs> we have the Spirit with us. If if you have so merged the church and the Holy Spirit, and of course, the Holy Spirit cannot err, we would affirm that. Um, how do you reform? Uh, what if error creeps in?
1: <laughs> how do you correct it? Well, I mean, it's it's essentially the same argument that we have to make with uh, Mormons. Mormons say the Holy Spirit has told me that Joseph Smith was yeah. prophet of God, right? And I tell people, no, God has borne His witness in the scriptures, and if there's a spirit telling you contrary, it is not the Holy Spirit. His testimony, God's testimony trumps yours. And Eastern Orthodox essentially are arguing the same thing. That's one of the things that led me to this. It's the same epistemology. It's the same games in just different flavors. And both of them can make you feel good. But like I said just a moment ago, God tells us that our hearts are deceitful. Yeah. And he says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. He says the fool trusts in his own heart. Uh, who, why were the Bereans more noble than those of Thessalonica? In that they searched the scriptures daily to know whether or not these things are true.
0: Yeah. That's what we should do. Yes. That's that's what we should do.
1: Truth will make you free.
0: Absolutely.